Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports, and welcome to the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. I am Dan Newman. I am joined, as always, by Andrew Newman, my brother, my co-host, and we are once again ready to get moving with another episode of Hello, Old Sports. 40 years ago this month, or perhaps 40 years ago last month, depending next month, rather, depending on when this posts on December 21st, 1982, yours truly was born. So to celebrate my 40th birthday, we are traveling back to 1982 to talk about everything or most things, at least that happened in sports in the year 1982. Andrew, how are you doing this evening? So we're not just doing the 1982 World Series. <laughs> <laughs> For anybody who doesn't know, that's a reference to one of our most recent episodes we did uh just on the 1947 World Series, but I had prepared for the whole year of 1947. So it was a little bit of a play on uh on that. But um no, I uh I'm doing well, Dan. I am excited to get into this year as i said for the 1947 one even though it didn't fully apply i really like these individual year ones and the thing we'll talk about towards the end is the thing i'm the most excited to talk about which is the nfl player strike and the fact that i've have out a couple articles that it's really all but disappeared from popular consciousness and it was you know the longest strike in nfl history in terms of it wiped out half a season more than half a season and nobody seems to know what it was about, or nobody seems to at least write what it was about, which is very strange. So, yeah, 82, um, we've done so far, we've done 1920, which was Babe Ruth, and it was the discovery of the Black Sox scandal. It was the founding of the first organized Negro League Baseball League. It was the first year of what would become the NFL. There was a there was an Olympics that year, obviously, and we did uh, we've done 86 which was for Andrew's 35th birthday last year. And that was obviously, you know, crazy baseball playoffs, Buckner and Dave Henderson. And there was the Giants, the Super Bowl run in 86. And the the, the 86 Celtics considered one of the greatest single season teams of all time. And we did 41 with DiMaggio's streak and Williams hitting 406. And I think those are the three full years that we've done so far. But we always have a good time with them. And 82... It's an interesting one. There's not maybe that sort of defining moment the way there is in 41 or in 86. But the more I got into this, the more I realized there really was a lot there. So. Yeah, it's an interesting time. It's I mean, I, it, that's probably the case. Any of these years you say, the more you dig into them. This sounds trite, but like it's the pivot from some stuff is still very rooted in the 70s. But. 
certain things are making the turn. You know, baseball, I think, is a good example of that where you're moving from the year World Series the year before was the Dodgers and the Yankees, who played three times in four years in the late seven or three times in five years in the late seventies, early eighties. And this year now the Brewers are in the World Series and you're you're starting a run of different teams in the series every year. And um, you know, football, it was the year before, but football 81, or I guess technically January of 82 was when you, after 10 years of the Steelers and the Cowboys and the Raiders, all of a sudden it's the 49ers and the Bengals come on to uh, the stage. So I I think we're sort of at the precipice of two eras, uh, you know, the the transfer between two eras. We should clarify that. So for 1982, for the individual sports, you know, golf, tennis, whatever, it's the, what actually happens there. 82 Masters, 82 Indy 500, and then any other interesting things that happen. For the team sports, we start with the NBA season that had its playoffs in that year. So the, you know, April, May, June, you know, 82 NBA playoffs, NHL finals, NHL playoffs, Stanley Cup, et cetera. Baseball is easy because it's all in one year. And then for football, it's that season, even though the Super Bowl doesn't get played until the following year. So we will talk about the 82 Dolphins and the 82 Redskins, even though that Super Bowl doesn't get played until 1983. So we won't be talking, for instance, about the catch Niners Cowboys (laughs) January 82 Montana to Dwight Clark, because that was the 81 season, even though it happened in calendar year 82. So we hope that all makes sense. That's a distinction that to sports fans like diehard, you know, most people listen to this podcast makes total sense. They understand exactly what we mean to somebody who doesn't, you know, maybe is a family member of ours or just somebody who just is, you know, happens across this. When we say, Oh, we're talking about this sports year, 1982. So that includes things that happened in um, October of 1981. And, January of 1983, but not January of 1982. But <laughs> people who are familiar with, they know what we're doing. Um, it's every, it's the sport, it's the year that ends in 1982, except for football when it's the regular season of 1982. So, <laughs> yeah. And like you said, it makes sense to sports fans. And that's probably who most of our listeners are here. And I just have to confess that this was another one of those episodes where I had way, way, way too many books to go through to prepare, whether it's, you know, Michael Jordan or something about Don Shula or the the Lakers, the Showtime Lakers. I was picking books off the bookshelf to do my prep work, and I just kept grabbing and grabbing and grabbing. And I think there's something like 14 books surrounding me here. So I'm going to have to grab for one of those at some point and leave the show for a minute in Andrew's very capable hands. So, so 1982, I guess usually we start with the, with the winter sports, right? Yeah, that makes the most sense. Cause they start the year, you know, they started the year before. So that's, that's the best place to start. Um, so I guess that would be basketball, uh, NBA or college. I, I, we want to start with the NBA or, Let's start with the NBA because the college is actually really interesting for 82. So let, let's start with the NBA. Not that the NBA is not interesting, but by 1982, so 79, Magic and Bird get drafted. 
79-80, Lakers beat the Sixers in the finals. 81, Lakers struggle. Celtics beat the Houston Rockets in the finals. And then in 82, it really is still, by this point, it's very much the story of three teams in the NBA. It's the Lakers out West. And this is sort of the heart of the Celtic Sixer rivalry, which I think if you're a fan of the NBA, and even if you just kind of look at the mid eighties forward, you think Lakers Celtics, right? Or maybe a little later Lakers Pistons Celtics Pistons. If you look back a little bit to sort of right before everything blew up, because things sort of started to blow up in like 84 when the Lakers played the Celtics for the first time. And everybody thinks it's Lakers Celtics and that's all there is. And then later a little bit of Pistons, Maybe you throw Houston in there for that one finals. From 80 to about 84, definitely 83, the Sixers are an equal with those other two teams as far as powerhouses in the NBA. In fact, we did a whole episode on 80, 1980 in Philadelphia sports that included a lot about the Sixer team that made the finals. So, the Sixers are just as much an important part of the NBA landscape in 1982 as either Boston or LA. They played the Lakers three times in, in, in four years in the finals. They played them in 80. They played them in 82. They played them in 83. Uh, And they only missed it in 81 when the Celtics having been down three, one came back and won three in a row, including game seven in the Boston garden. And it's funny. I may have mentioned this before in, on this podcast, my my wife's parents, my in-laws talk about that 81 game seven, which they were at at the Boston Garden as like the coolest moment they were ever at for a Celtics game. And they've been going for, you know, you know, going on almost 50 years now. So that 81 series was an epic one where the Celtics came back from down three one. And in fact, in 82, the Celtics are down three one again and they win two more games and they got Philly coming into the Boston Garden again for another game seven. Nobody thinks Philly's going to win, but they do. They pull it out in seven games to beat the Celtics and then go on and play the Lakers in the NBA finals. Do you know what starts in that game seven? What is that game seven at the Boston Garden famous for? It's the beginning of something that you still hear in sports to this day. I have no idea. Beat L.A. Oh, so it's funny because now people just chant beat L.A. Whenever you play a Los Angeles team in anything big, especially in baseball or basketball, football, not as much probably because there have been many L.A. teams over the last 20 years or so. But you I remember when the Dodgers were in the World Series, not obviously in 20 because there weren't that many fans in the stands. But I was it 18, ironically, which was against eight. No, what what year did what, what other year were the Dodgers in the World Series? It was 18, right? They played the Red Sox. 18, they played the Red Sox. Uh, 20 would have been when they played Tampa. Right. But that was then they 17. They lost to Houston, didn't they? 18, they lost to uh, Boston. Boston 20 they lost to Tampa or they beat Tampa but the series was in Texas there were plenty of fans there it was just in Texas 
So 17 and 18, you heard that beat L.A. chant against the Dodgers. And that was just basically like we're playing an L.A. team. So we're going to say, let's beat the, you know, beat the L.A. team. But that chant started with Celtic fans. Once it was obvious that the Sixers were going to win that. Eastern Conference finals chanting to the Sixers, hey, Go beat the Lakers, beat L.A., beat L.A., beat L.A. So which is it, funny because they hadn't even played yet in like that era. They weren't even really rivals yet. That's a good point. We're talking about the Celtics and the Lakers right now weren't really rivals yet. I mean, they'd been historical rivals, but also the Celtics had won every single one of those. So yeah. it wasn't. Um, yeah, that's that's interesting that I, I feel like maybe I knew that and, and forgot it. But I also hadn't put two and two together that that's. um they hadn't actually played in any of those like, classic finals yet. You know, that was still a few years down the line. So, yeah, so that's the Sixers. They go to the NBA finals to take on the Lakers. And it's really sort of an interesting year for the Lakers also, because they had won the title in 80. And that was the year that Jack McKinney fell off his bike, suffered some head injuries, some brain trauma and was replaced by Paul Westhead. They beat the Sixers in 80. 81, they lose to Houston. I don't know whether the loss to Houston was in the conference finals or somewhere else. It's not not particularly relevant. And then in 81, you're talking about? This is in 81, exactly. I know 86 was the second round, wasn't it? 86, no, 86 was the conference finals. Nicely produced. All right, go ahead. And then 81 was they they lost. Let me let me, let me pull up the 81. Um, I got it up. 81 uh, Western Conference playoffs. 81 Western Conference playoffs. The Western. Con- oh, God, they really give you a lot here. <laughs> uh, no, it wasn't because the 81 Western Conference finals was the Rockets against Kansas City. The Kansas City <laughs> Kings and the Kansas City Kings had like a losing record, didn't they? Then the Rockets had a losing record in 81, too. Let's, yeah, I think it might have been, and it was like two like the really Lakers, crappy teams. The Lakers actually lost in the, it wasn't even the semifinals. The Lakers lost in the first round that year in 81. They lost to Houston in three games. So they did lose to Houston. The sixth seed, and the Lakers were the one seed. Or wait, no, the Lakers were the three seed. Excuse me. That was when there was still just six teams. There were buys. Yeah. Now, when you say they lost in three games, was it a three game series? Yeah, two or to one. Two, two to one, yeah, which is crazy that any league did a three-game series. But so the Lakers won a championship in 80, this great story, magic, 20-year-old guy, MVP, everybody knows, you know, plays center, replaces Kareem, et cetera. Then they go into 81, 80-81 with Westhead, Paul Westhead as the coach. They underperform, and then they go into the 81-82 season with Paul Westhead as the coach. And Magic and Westhead clash almost immediately. And as the season progresses, it becomes very clear that Magic and Westhead are not going to be able to coexist. There's this famous incident where Magic basically ignores Westhead in a huddle. Westhead's trying to get him to pay attention and Magic won't do it. And the issue is, or one of the issues is that Magic has this great relationship with Jerry Buss with the owner. And so Magic basically, first of all, he publicly demands a trade. 
And then he also basically calls Jerry Buss and says it's him or me. And if you don't fire Paul Westhead, I don't know that I'm going to be able to be on this team long term. And they just signed Magic to this long contract. They signed him to a 25 year, 25 million dollar contract. <laughs> so he's basically now who knows if they, they obviously didn't expect him necessarily to play that long. But they've signed him to this contract that'll take him well into the next century, 25 years with the Lakers. And so Jerry Buss's loyalty is clearly to Magic. They're friends. They go out together on occasion. And so despite the fact that Westhead had won a championship only two years previous, Buss fires him and brings in Pat Riley midway through the 81-82 season. Yeah, and it's... uh... It's weird to think that Pat Riley wasn't just always the head coach of the Lakers. You know what I mean? Like, I know, I know, depending on if you're a certain age, you know him as a player and the first in college and then in the pros. But like, didn't you say you can see him in like the 80 NBA finals on like the bench as an assistant coach? And it's just it's hard to believe that he was ever that that he wasn't just sort of preordained to be the coach as soon as he stopped playing there isn't yes I've, i have the dvd of the 1980 nba finals game six and it includes the post-game celebration and westhead had been jack mckinney's assistant and then when mckinney had to leave because of his bike accident they brought riley off of the broadcast booth out of the broadcast booth where he'd been doing games put him on the bench as an assistant coach and you can see riley in the celebration in 1980 but he doesn't look like Pat Riley. He looks still kind of very 70s. His hair is no gel in it. It's sort of like the long 1970s haircut. He's got the big kind of round glasses. He does not look like the guy he would become, but he sticks around and ends up getting this job. There's this weird situation where Bus is not sold on Riley. He actually decides he he almost takes like a football approach and he takes. Have you heard about this? No, I don't believe I have. He announces that. Riley is going to be the this is after they fire Westhead. He announces that Riley is going to be the offensive coach and Jerry West, who doesn't want a job at all is going to be the defensive coach. So he basically has this idea that they're going to have co-coaches. And even even at the press conference, Jerry West kind of makes it clear, like, look, I I don't want this job. I I do not consider myself the coach or the co-coach or whatever. But West insists on referring to the two of them as co-coaches and at some point, you know, as the season progresses, that sort of falls away, but it's, it's a very sort of ignominious beginning for Pat Riley. And so let me just, um, let me just kind of read to you from the press conference. Um, Mm. Bus says, I did not specifically make someone head coach and someone, the assistant coach that was not accidental. I did it this way on purpose. I feel that Pat is capable of running the Laker team. However, I feel that we need a new offensive coach. And I got this wrong. West is the offensive coach, not Riley. I asked Jerry if he'd take that job. And fortunately, because of his relationship with Pat, I feel the two of them will coach the team together. 
And then a, a reporter asks, will the two coaches come out at the press conference? You know, who's in charge here? And Buss says, I'm making this change to change the offense. And since Jerry West will be in charge of the offense, he'll be the one that you ask questions to. <laughs> However, you can talk to Pat whenever you want as well. Jerry, who picks this? St- and then the reporter says, Jerry, who picks the starting lineup? Buss says, who picks the starting lineup? In basketball, that's typically the coach. So then the reporter responds is, okay, well, which one of the two guys is the coach? And Buss responds, oh, which one of these two? Uh, I think there are some things among along the line, not only the starting lineup, but other considerations as well that the Pat and Jerry are going to have to sit down and work with the, work out with their relative can we, response. Can, we just, can I just stop you real quick and explain and say that we're describing a, a scenario for a team that won the championship that year. <laughs> like, this does not sound like something like when we, if we were doing a podcast on like w- the worst teams ever and like something that happened in like the Browns in 2011 or something like that. Like this, this is a circus and they won a championship this year. And the funny thing is, is that this is, yeah, this, the only other thing that was close to this was that the Chicago Cubs in the fifties and sixties, instead of having a manager, they did this thing called the college of coaches for like four years. And it was an absolute disaster, but there's this total confusion. And so as soon as Jerry West goes to speak, he goes, I'd like to clear one thing up. Pat's the coach. So after, <laughs> after all of these machinations by Jerry Butts, Jerry West just totally against against it, but it works out. You know it's like it's like that SNL skit, which is funny in hindsight because they did win that election, but where in ninety it's the ninety-two Democratic primary debate SNL skit where they're they're all talking about how they don't want the nomination. Yeah, and Mario Cuomo just says, Let me make this clear. I have mob ties. <laughs> I think it's I think it's Al Gore. His wife is there. And like somebody says Al Gore would be a great candidate for president. And Gore's wife goes, I think that's a low blow when my husband isn't even here to answer for himself. But and it's funny you mentioned that because the book I was reading was by a guy named Jeff Perlman, who you've probably heard of. He's written great books oh, yeah. on everything from the 86 Mets to um the Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Brett Favre. We did a book on the USFL that I drew pretty heavily from in a previous episode. And he actually, as he prefaces that conference, that press conference, he says it reads like a Saturday Night Live skit. So I think the main issue on the court was that Westhead really wanted to slow down the offense. And this was also during the time when they were still trying to do this sort of two-point guard thing with both magic and norm Nixon. And it wasn't really clear whose team it was, who was running the offense and Riley comes in and really kind of loosens things up. And that's when you see the birth of this Laker fast break, but Westhead kind of pretty, that's pretty crazy. When you consider Westhead's reputation after that, when he gets to Loyola, he's like, Mr. Fast break. What do they call him? The guru of go, right? Yeah, and I, I'll be honest. I, he was the coach at LaSalle for the entire 70s. Mm-hmm. I don't know what style he ran. I mean, I know he had Michael Brooks, who was a really, really good player, but I don't know if they ran that, like, you know, full speed ahead offense. But, yeah, from Loyola to the WNBA to the uh, – he coached, a, like, another college team after Loyola. That's what they were was – his the 30 for 30 on him is called the guru of go. 
Yep. So. And I think that um, he kind of maybe grows into that later, but at this time he's definitely got a different sort of approach. The other thing is that he had sort of overcomplicated the offense beyond just wanting to slow it down. Riley comes in, he simplifies it. He runs more and, you know, they're off to the races. They win in 82. They get swept by Philly in 83, but then they, and then they make the finals in 84. This is the beginning of what? Four NBA finals in a row for the Lakers. And then they miss a year and then they make three more. So seven years out of eight, this team led by Patrick, Patrick Ewing, led by Pat Riley and Magic Johnson makes it to the NBA finals. Well, I got a nice little factoid for you here. This is their first season, and it begins a string of nine consecutive seasons where the Lakers are the number one seed in the Western Conference, which is crazy. Yeah, if you think about that, that I mean, that would this was so that would have been what 82, 83, 84, 85, 86, 87, 88, 89, 90. They were really good in 90. Yeah, that was Riley's last year. And then they lost in like the second or third round. I guess it wouldn't playoffs. have been 90. It would have been, it would have been 89. would have been the ninth straight year. If 80. No, 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 no. Not, you're it right, would have 90. been 90. Yeah. No, they were really and good. The funny in 90. thing is, 91, they went to the finals again. Yeah. With like, Mike Dunleavy been, as the coach. Yeah. It's funny. I was, as I'm looking, I'm like, oh, yeah. This was the, we did it because we just talked about how we, we drew a team number for, uh, or we drew a team for our next random team episode. And I'm realizing our first random team episode was about the a team in this season, the 81-82 Jazz. Yeah, and I because I, I, I don't I don't know if did you did you have anything to add on on that front? I think the big thing that year was that they fired their coach and they brought in well, Frank Layden. Listen to that episode that, if you want. That's how, yeah, that's how I noticed it was. I was looking at the coaching changes for teams that year, and that was one of them was Tom Nasalki to to Frank Layden. Um, I was going to say, before we get into sort of the playoffs and the finals, uh, and just so anybody knows, it's been a couple of weeks since we've done an episode. So we're if we're like stepping on each other a little bit, that's probably why we're not in our, our normal rhythm, but you'll get over it. Um, so a couple of sort of season things like season nuggets before we get into the playoffs. And since I said nuggets, we'll go there. The Denver Nuggets did something that's almost hard to fathom in this season. Do you have any idea what it is? And this is, I'm reading this from Wikipedia, but no. And I just watched an, a documentary on Doug Moe, who as I think was their coach at the time, but I have to, I have to admit, I don't know. The Denver Nuggets scored 100 points in every single game of the season. While also allowing 100 points in every game of the season. That was Doug Moe. He was, he had almost no interest in playing defense. In fact, there was one game where he told his team at the end of the game, do not play defense. And then they played a little bit of defense and he called the timeout and just screamed at them because they were playing defense. Well, and then the thing too with him is like him and his two assistants, there was all the turmoil where like they would like, they would slap each other in the face and the one guy would put his hand in front of his eyes and, and all that. So Knew, I knew knew where you were going with that, but yeah, so. faces you were the faces you were making at me as I was going. A um, couple other things I wanted to talk about with this season. Um, I didn't realize this lasted this long. This was the um, first year the, the in the off season before this season 
they eliminated the three to make two and two to make one free throws that used to be a, a staple in the NBA. And why don't you explain what that is? Because it's if you if you don't know about what that is, it's really kind of strange. Yeah, it was almost like so in college basketball where there's the bonus and there's the double bonus where if you get seven fouls, you shoot one and one. And if there's 10 fouls, you get even on non-shooting fouls and a half, you shoot two fouls. This was that sort of situation where it was there was a penalty, but then there was also this was like the double penalty, right? Where once you got to a certain number of uh, once you got to a certain number of fouls, but you still could only score a certain number of points, but it basically gave you the ability to miss a free throw and so still th- get two points. Yeah, three to make two basically means that you would if you went to the line for two shots, you'd have you'd, if you, you'd shoot the first one, and if you made it then you'd have a second shot. And if you made that one, that was the end of it. But if you missed either the first or the second, you get a third shot to, you know, three to make two, which meant there was probably rarely a live rebound on a foul shot because you'd have to get to the third shot to have a live rebound. And even then it would only be if the guy missed the third. So if he missed the first, what if the guy missed the first one and the second one, would it be a live rebound on that? That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. It also just feels like it would Dad be would probably know this. You know, I remember it's funny you mentioned that because I remember Dad him telling me. <laughs> I remember him telling me about the three to make two when I was, you know, whatever teenager or whatever. It's like, oh, yeah, it used to be three to make two. And I was like, I have no idea what the hell you're talking about. So, but do you have anything else from the NBA for that year before I kind of just put a uh, put a bow no, on just, it with the finals? No. Those were just some sort of things. They also, it talks about how the breakaway rim became the standardized equipment in the NBA after the rash of uh, baskets being destroyed and pulled down. But, um, you know, that was sort of just the, the changes in the game that year. This is not a particularly memorable NBA finals. It's Lakers in six over the Sixers. Magic is finals MVP. He's By this point, he's three years in. He's won two championships and he's been NBA uh, finals MVP in both of those finals. It's the uh, another finals loss for Julius Irving and the Sixers. He'd lost in 77 to Portland. He lost in 80 to the Lakers and he loses again in 82 to the Lakers. And, you know, obviously sprinkle in a conference finals loss to Boston the year before in 81. And so this is what prompts the Sixers to make some changes. Most prominently, they go out and get Moses Malone in the offseason, bring him in. He'd been MVP before with Houston. I think he'd actually been MVP. He'd been MVP the year before that year. In 81, 82, Mm. he's the MVP with Houston. I think he's the only guy ever to win back-to-back MVPs with two different teams. Definitely in the NBA, maybe in any sport. I'd have to think about who else would have even had a chance to do something like that. And then they go on this great run in 82, 83, sweep the finals, Dr. J's only championship, the the one of only two... NBA finals for the Philadelphia NBA championships. I should say for the Philadelphia 76ers the following year in 83. So not a particularly interesting or noteworthy NBA finals, but a turning point in that it's the first year with Riley. It's the year that prompts the Sixers to go out and trade for Moses Malone. 
and the NBA continues to sort of evolve into the product that it becomes in the mid and late 80s. The other thing that I think is worth noting is that despite being universally beloved in the mid and late 80s with all the commercials and then especially he becomes almost a national icon in the wake of his HIV diagnosis, Magic Johnson is not popular after all this move, all these moves he makes with Westhead. People think he's a spoiled athlete. They think he forced his coach out. Magic gets booed. You know, it's hard to picture Magic Johnson getting booed anywhere but Boston. But Magic gets booed after this. And his future with the Lakers is not totally guaranteed at this point. And in fact, I think it's another year until they trade Norm Nixon and turn the team over, turn the offense completely over to Magic. And by the mid-80s, it's clearly less Kareem's team and more Magic's team. But Magic Johnson, not popular anywhere, even in L.A., after forcing Westhead out. A couple of things. The Lakers did sweep. They only played two rounds because it was still the six teams. They swept through the Western Conference playoffs. The one sort of theme in the 80s is just how weak the West was compared to the East. The whole time in the East, there was at least two really good teams. Yeah, it's Boston and Philly, and then later it's Boston and Detroit. And even in the middle, you had some teams that were, you know, Milwaukee had some good teams. Philly was good into the mid-80s. There were some better teams. The Lakers swept the Spurs in the 82 Eastern or Western Conference Finals. Could you do you know anything about the 82 Spurs? You know what I mean? I'd um, imagine it was George Gervin, would be my guess. The fact that the Lakers were able to get nine straight number one seeds says a lot about the Lakers, but it also says a lot about the Western Conference at that time. Which is Uh, funny because it's just the opposite of what it is over the last 25 years. And the only other thing I wanted to mention, the Eastern Conference Finals, the Celtics beat the, uh, or excuse me, the Sixers beat the Celtics in a game seven in the Boston Garden. They became just the second team ever to uh, win a game seven in the Boston Garden, second road team ever behind the uh, 73 Knicks. And just while we're on the subject, uh, New York Knicks, 81 and 81, 82, their record was 33 and 49. They were coached by Red Holzman, who had come back after trying to retire, but they couldn't find anything else. Michael Ray Richardson is their leading scorer. What's his points per game here? Why can't I see it? 17.9 points per game. Michael Ray Richardson, he had a pretty good line that year. Are you joking about the fact that he was on cocaine all the time? Yes. Yeah, no, this was this was the this was also the height of some of the cocaine issues in the NBA, which kind of worked themselves out as they get to the mid 80s. So, yeah, that's the NBA, not a particularly noteworthy year. It's not 84 or 80 or any of the years in the later 80s, but it's the beginning of the Riley Showtime era. And that is noteworthy in and of itself. I also th- is this the last year for Bill Fitch with the Celtics? They're the best team uh, that year. They're sixty three and nineteen. They actually have the best record by six games in the NBA, which is why nobody gave them a chance or nobody gave Philly a chance in the Eastern Conference Finals. Okay, so there's one more year, eighty two, eighty three, with Bill Fitch for the Celtics, and that kind of ends up being the same type of thing, sort of like Magic with Westhead in eighty two, eighty three. Bird, despite the fact that they had won a championship with Fitch gets frustrated, 
forces Fitch out and then they bring in Casey Jones and they win two more championships. If you want to hear more about Bill Fitch, check out our in memoriam episodes, which are coming up later towards the end of this year. I want to make a little brief PSA. I meant to do that at the beginning of the show. If any of the listeners out there, anybody out there has somebody who passed away in sports in the year 2022 that you want to talk about, hello, old sports at gmail.com. We'll be starting to record our 2022 in memoriam episodes uh, in the next couple of weeks. So give, drop us a line if that's something you want to be a part of. If there's anybody who's particularly important, noteworthy, you name it to you, uh, you know, drop us a line and come on and talk about them. So the college basketball season in 81, 82 to me is almost more interesting than the NBA. Yeah, it's sort of the start of really a four-year arrow where the tournament and specifically three of those four years, the championship game is a very well-known game. Now, some of that's very sad for Georgetown. This is the freshman year of Patrick Ewing at Georgetown. I feel like you have a, a unique perspective on this, A, being a Georgetown alum and B, also being uh, an alum of a school from Boston mm-hmm. where Patrick Ewing was, fr- I mean, he's from Jamaica, but he was living in Boston. He picks Georgetown. And and I remember hearing about that as a kid and kind of thinking like, oh yeah, well, of course he would. They talked about some of the other schools he was considering. And I'm like, why would he consider one of those schools instead of Georgetown? And then it was like, well, he kind of, the reason you think of it like that now is because he picked Georgetown. He you know made I mean? Georgetown, Georgetown. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So he goes there and that's the one thing I wanted to point out about that. And I'm going to skip a few pages here, but you know, my whole life, I kind of knew, you know, there's that Michael Jordan hitting the shot, you know, the sort of baseline shot to win the national championship over Georgetown in the national championship game. And it was sort of the first real big high profile play of Jordan's career. It also comes against Patrick Ewing. It would be one of his foils for most of his career. But in my head, I think I was also conflating 85 with Villanova and everything where North Carolina was a much better team than Georgetown that year. For some reason, I'd always thought like, oh, it was a little bit of an upset. North Carolina was 31 and two and Georgetown was 28, six. Yeah. And this is Jordan's rookie year, rookie years, freshman year with UNC under Dean Smith. 20 years as coach of UNC, Dean Smith has never been to, has never gotten an NCAA title. This is his first chance at it. And in addition to Jordan, they've got Sam Perkins, who would play, you know, 10, 12 years in the NBA. James Worthy, Hall of Famer in his own right. I think this is Worthy's last year as a college player. I think he goes out after this year and gets drafted by the Lakers. So, they are a great team, but this is not just a Michael Jordan team. This also has a bunch of other guys, and I'm right about that. Worthy gets drafted after in the 82 draft, so this is his last year with UNC. This is a team with a lot of other guys, Perkins and Worthy especially, that make it a really, really good team. This is also rule changes. This is the first year that they only use the jump ball at the beginning of the game and the start of each overtime. So this was, I guess, where they eliminated the or they introduced the possession arrow in college basketball this year. I don't know. I'm guessing maybe they did a jump ball 
at the start of the second half as well. Yeah, so maybe that's what they mean. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they weren't doing it like old school, like 1940. <laughs> they did a jump ball after every hoop. So. No, but they might have done they might have done jump balls on held balls. It's possible. Yeah, I mean, the NBA still does that. And the whole reason that other places don't do that, high school, college, wherever, is just because they don't trust the ref to throw it up well. So it wouldn't surprise me if it took them that long to realize that the NCAA finals, uh, the NCAA tournament in those days is still just 48 teams. So basically kind of like the NBA, you got 32 teams playing in the first round. You got 16 with a bye. And the final four ends up being Georgetown against Louisville and UNC against Houston. This is the same Houston team that would lose to NC State in 83. And then they did they make another finals? Did they, they lose lost to Georgetown they, in 84? They lose to Georgetown in 84. And this is Elijah Wan and Drexler. And so you end up with the 1982 NCAA tournament between two iconic coaches looking for their first national championship. Dean Smith in North Carolina and John Thompson at Georgetown. And they're, I wouldn't call them friends, but they're, you know, they're, they're friendly. And Thompson talks about how much he admires Smith and how he wants to win, but it's hard for him to go against Dean Smith, all of that type of thing. And they also have very contrasting styles. Smith is very much a soft-spoken type, and Thompson is a yeller and a screamer. And this is Dean Smith's first championship, too. Correct. Worthy Worthy is the first team, uh, the consensus first team All-American. I I always like this because some of these guys are guys that you, you know, hear about with, you know, distinguished pro careers, and some are guys you just don't, you know, never hear about again. So the first team All-American team uh, was... The guards were Quentin Daly and Eric Floyd. Floyd was from Georgetown. Sleepy Floyd went on to a career with the Rockets. James Worthy and Terry Cummings. And the center was Ralph Sampson from Virginia. And then the second team was Dale Ellis, Kevin McGee, John Paxson, uh, who went on to the Bulls and hit the big shot in the 93 finals, Sam Perkins and Paul Pressey. But Ralph Sampson won all the major awards. He was the player of the year in basically every major category. Um, you know, there was like six different trophies, but he uh, he won all of them. But uh, obviously it was the UNC and Georgetown uh, national championship game that everybody remembers about that season. So let's talk about this game a little bit. So Carolina, they run a four corners offense. And what what you don't know what a four corners offense is, is that basically it's a way to kill the clock on offense. You put two guys up front, sort of at the top of the key and out. You put two guys in the corner and you basically just pass the ball around to kill the clock. And North Carolina had done this to drain the clock in the ACC tournament against Virginia for the last nine minutes of the game. There was no shot clock in those days in college mm-hmm. basketball and everybody Carolina fans like basically blamed Virginia. They said, well, why didn't they try and defend us? But everybody else blamed Carolina. And a lot of people think that a few years later when college basketball, when the NCAA adopted the 45 second clock, that 
part of their motivation for doing it was this horrible game with Carolina against UVA well, in the ACC tournament. I think also, also a big reason was we're talking about the beginning of Patrick Ewing's career three years later in the championship game, Villanova against Georgetown. Villanova did the exact same thing in 85 where they just they tried to kill the clock the entire game, basically. Yeah, it was definitely college basketball in the 80s pre shot clock is a very there are times when college basketball is very similar to the NBA and there are times when college basketball is very different from the NBA. And this was one of the times when college basketball was was very was very different. And think about it. We just talked about the Nuggets scored and allowed 100 points in every game. And we're talking about a college basketball team that tried to kill nine minutes off the clock in the second half. Yeah, in the ACC tournament with a 44 to 41 lead after Michael Jordan makes some clutch shots, Smith does not hesitate. He puts up four fingers, sends his team into the four corners, enraging spectators, media, and even league officials. The Virginia coach does not foul until there's 28 seconds left in the game. So for basically eight minutes, the Carolina is just passing the ball around. Virginia makes two late free throws, but... um. Carolina wins the game 45 to 43. So this is what Georgetown is preparing to go up against in the NCAA championship game. The first in this game, this Carolina Georgetown, this, this final game, this championship game, the beginning really belongs to James worthy worthy scores, 16 of Carolina's 22 points. I would also note that Patrick Ewing gets called for goaltending on the first four possessions. And Thompson is okay with this. He says nobody remembers that they were goaltending calls. They remember him swatting them away. Is that what it was? Just remember that he blocked the shot, that he swatted the ball away. So despite the fact that it leads to points for the opposition, Thompson is okay with this fact because he thinks that Georgetown and Ewing specifically are intimidating the other team. So I want to sort of with... um go into some detail about sort of the, the the last part, the second half of this game. Georgetown's up 32 to 31 at the half with four minutes left. The game, um, Sleepy Floyd mentions an easy layup. Sam Perkins hits a baseline jumper. And then there's a steal and uh, Worthy dunks it off of Sleepy Floyd for the last 11 minutes and 41 seconds. Nobody leads by more than three points. 5-11 left in the game. Carolina's got the ball up by one. Smith calls for the hated four corners offense. With a 2.30 left in the game, it's a one-point Carolina lead. And with a minute and 16 left, Eric Smith of Georgetown pokes the ball away from Matt Doherty, who's a future UNC coach in his own right. and how the But the ref calls a foul. And Doherty misses the first first um, first shot, but then Sleepy Floyd gets the ball and dunks it. And Georgetown is up 62 to 61 with 53 seconds in the clock on the clock. UNC comes down. Michael Jordan hits an open jumper. And this is that famous Jordan shot that I believe Mm -hmm. I read this as a kid and I couldn't find it. I looked really hard. I heard somewhere that. People in Carolina were so happy about this shot that they put it on the front page of the area phone book. 
like the cover <laughs> of it. And I couldn't. Well, I, I guess. When when did they won? Before, when was the last time UNC had won before this? Sometimes in the fifties with which McGuire coached them in the late fifties. Was it Dick McGuire yeah. that coached them in the late fifties? So it'd probably been twenty five years. Well, and you got to think too. It's uh, there was no professional sports teams in North Carolina even back then. Football, you know, there wasn't the UNC and and Duke and whoever else. Football teams weren't exactly bringing home national championships anytime after world war two, really, um, you know, they had NASCAR, but it was, I would think most NASCAR winners were from the Carolinas at that point. It was sort of their biggest sports moment that had a national impact in quite a long time. And I'm looking at this. I don't think they had won. I think they had UNC. I don't, doesn't look like they had, Oh, no, I'm sorry. 56-57, they were under Frank McGuire. They were champions. They were 32-0, and 0, and they were champions of the NCAA University Division, which I'm guessing is just, you know, what we now would consider Division mm-hmm. One in this day and age. So Jordan puts UNC up by one, and a Georgetown player by the name of Freddie Brown brings the ball up court, Stops his dribble just outside the key. Georgetown had won, worn white uniforms in each of its previous NCAA games, but was in blue for the finals. Carolina was in white. And so Brown throws the ball basically directly to James Worthy, who's a player on Carolina. He's a player on the other team. And Worthy, surprised, just kind of gets the ball, dribbles it down court, gets fouled, misses the free throws, but then Georgetown can't do anything but just heave the ball towards the hoop. And so that's how it ends, with Freddie Brown throwing the ball to the wrong team. He later says that he mistook Worthy for Sleepy Floyd, and that is how the 1982 NCAA tournament ends with a... Poor young player basically passing it to a guy on the other team because he mistakes it for a player on his own team, which is probably a more common mistake for a college player at the age of 20 to make than you might think. It just happened on such a grand stage here, and Smith gets his first title. Thompson has to wait a couple years for his title, his first title, and it's sort of a classic, you know, Ewing versus Jordan NCA finals matchup and it's the first of three NCA championship games that the Hoyas would make during the Ewing era. Yeah, and sadly the two most famous ones are the it, there's there's in this four-year era there's Georgetown's in three championships and there's three really famous championship games, but the one that's not is the one that they win. So 82, this is a really famous game. The next year, they're not in it, but it's NC State against uh, Houston. The year after is Georgetown against Houston, but you don't really ever see highlights of that game. And then the year after that is Villanova against Georgetown, which there's been documentaries made about and is considered like the perfect sort of ups. It's one of the greatest upsets of all time. Mm -hmm. So people almost forget that Georgetown did win a national championship in 84 with Ewing. You can say they should have won more, but like people, I think seem to go like, Oh, they never won one. They did win a championship. Houston is the one that never won. one. 
Houston didn't win one. Yeah. And in fact, they reunite 10 years later in the NBA. Drexler and Elijah Wan in 95 finally reunite to finally win a championship together against the Magic in the 95 NBA Finals. So that's basketball for 19, uh, 1982. Did you have anything to add? No, not really. Um, it's funny because you have, you know, sort of the uh, 80s really in, in the NBA kicking into high gear with the Sixers and then Magic and Bird have established themselves at this point, but they're still on the way up. And then in college, you got guys who are going to add to that sort of firmament with Jordan, obviously in the 90s, but Ewing and I mean, James, when you say 80s Lakers, the third player people mention is James Worthy, and he's a character in the college story here, not with the Lakers. Yeah, he might have the most interesting career of anybody in this time period, if you count college, because he was the only guy who was a a teammate of both Jordan and Magic in any sort of meaningful way. Won titles with Mm -hmm. both of them played in memorable big games with both of them. Worthy's got a really interesting story as far as where he was and who he was around in the 80s. Played for Dean Smith and then for Pat Riley in the 80s, two of the all-time great Hall of Fame basketball coaches. That would be an interesting podcast episode. I think I've talked about, we've talked about maybe doing something like that in the future, is just kind of pick a guy who was part of a lot of, different eras or or whatever that you might not see any crossover of. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I think that's a really good point where it's, you know, it's, it's like the guys you think of almost in occupying different orbits, but really there was quite a bit of overlap or, or at least some overlap. All right. So before we leave the winter sports and move on to baseball hockey, this was what the, was this the third championship of four for the Islanders? Yeah, and this is a really interesting, you know, we, we won't do a ton of hockey just because that's not our, our real wheelhouse. But this is it. Yeah. And we want to go to bed Islanders, tonight. Yeah. The, the Islanders are on their third. They win their third straight Stanley Cup. Uh, they would ultimately the Islanders won in 80, 81, 82, which is the year we're talking about. 83, they beat Edmonton in the finals. And then in 84, Edmonton finally beats them in the finals. It's a changing of the guard. This is. One of the best, this is probably, it's the highest, it's the Islander team that finished with the best record ever for them. I think a lot of people say the next year was their best team, but they finished 54, 16, and 10 for 100, uh, which is good for 118 points. They, interestingly, had their toughest time in the early rounds of the playoffs. They only... uh they escaped the first two rounds. They beat the Ranger or they beat looks like Pittsburgh and uh, best three out of five in five games. And then they beat uh, the Rangers in six games, the next round. And then they swept the conference finals and the Stanley cup finals against Vancouver very much in the middle of their dynasty. Mike bossy for the Islanders had a great year. He went, he had 64 goals and 83 assists, which was 147 points, which in a lot of years is, would lead the league. He finished 65 points behind Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky had 92 goals and 120 assists. It is second most points all time, 
only behind Wayne Gretzky four years later in 1986 with 215 points. Gretzky was in his won his third straight MVP. He was on his way to something like five or six MVPs in a row. So even though the Islanders are still mid dynasty, the Oilers are still and and Gretzky specifically are setting these records, which will never be touched, let alone broken. So, you know, the Islanders dynasty of the four straight cups and the 19 straight playoff wins is still very much alive. It's still the guys you think of uh, bossy Trottier, Potvin, Billy Smith and goal. But, um, you know, it's hard not to look at these standings and look at Edmonton and realize sort of this is a a team and Gretzky specifically is uh, is a team on the rise here. Hockey and basketball are similar in that a guy who's a phenom and he's clearly head and shoulders above anybody else in the league you know that sooner or later he's going to stop winning cha- start winning championships jordan lebron those guys were going to start winning championships eventually and gretzky was one of those guys and that's like i don't know a lot about it i don't claim any expertise but that's a good team those oilers teams for the 80s that's not just gretzky mark messier is on those teams in fact don't they win one after gretzky leaves with messier as sort of the the star in 90 yeah so they yeah. they they yeah. They finally get there in um, in 83. They lose to the Islanders. They beat the Islanders in 84. They win in 84, 85, 87, 88. And then in 90, after Gretzky's gone. So they win five cups uh, in, what, eight years or seven, 84, 85, 86, 87. Seven years, they win five cups, including one after they lost the best player in the history of the NHL. Those Gretzky numbers in the early 80s are kind of the closest thing we have in any other time period in any other American or North American sport to Babe Ruth, where he's just doing things that nobody else has really done before and just dominating the sport. Here's a really good example. So Bossy, a couple of years earlier, Mike Bossy for the Islanders, he made a big thing of, I'm going to try to score 50 goals in 50 games. And he got there. He scored 50 goals in 50 games, which tied the record from uh, Rocket Richard, who also had done 50 goals in 50 games. Gretzky broke this record, 50 goals, 39 games. So he, uh, you know, obviously it was, it's, it's sort of like how, oh, the record was 60 home runs and then it was 61 home runs and all of a sudden it was 70 home runs. And again, that's putting aside all of that, but, um, you know, it's a it's a story for um, the other the other story I wanted to tell, and this is interesting because it's they're wearing these as throwbacks, but only in warmups this year. The Philadelphia Flyers became the first team to wear long pants. The idea was to create a more streamlined uniform with lighter padding. Do you know what the problem was? Did the pants get caught in the skates? No, the problem was when they fell to the ice, there was nothing to stop them, and they would just slide all the way into the boards. <laughs> Like so, yeah, like something that would happen in a game with six year olds. They wore them last night, and but they're just wearing them in warm ups. But my friend had sent me that that they're wearing them like four times this year in warm ups, but they're not they're not taking the ice in long pants. Would that friend be Mike Petty, former guest on Hello Old Sports? It would be yes. Yeah, check that episode out. The um, two parter on the Baltimore Orioles, nineties Orioles. 1990s Orioles. We also did an 1890s Orioles one. Speaking of future and you know other episodes, 
two players from those 80s Islanders teams, Mike Bossy and Clark Gillies, both passed away in 2022. And we plan to discuss and honor both of them in our in memoriam episodes coming up um, next month. So go ahead and check those out. Do we want to move on to baseball, move past the winter sports and get to some baseball? Yeah, let's talk about some baseball. So this is it's funny because the Cardinals in 82 beat the Brewers. Seven games. This is a very interesting sort of phenomenon with these Cardinals teams, because usually you'll see a team lose a bunch and then win a World Series. The Cardinals are sort of the opposite. They make three World Series in 82, 85, and 87, but the only one they win is the first one. In 82, they beat the Brewers in seven games. And the other thing to talk about is from 82 to 87, the Cardinals are the only team that really is any sort of consistent. It's almost like when you simulate a video game and you get to like 10 years on and it's not any real players anymore. 82 was them and the Brewers. 83 was Orioles Phillies or Phillies Orioles or no Orioles Phillies. 84 is Tigers Padres. 85 is Royals Cardinals. 86 is Mets Red Sox and 87 is Twins Cardinals. So like they're the only sort of team that is consistent there at all. It's different teams in every other regard. It is. I wouldn't consider this a particularly memorable year in baseball. It's Cal Ripken Jr.'s rookie year. He wins rookie of the year for the Baltimore Orioles. The following year, they'll defeat the Philadelphia Phillies, like you said, and give Ripken his only championship. So Rip Ripken, American League Rookie of the Year, National League Rookie of the Year is Steve Sachs for the Dodgers and later, you know, a few years with the Yankees. And he's the famous, um, he's he's a time in prison. <laughs> one of Mr. Burns's all-stars in Homer at the Bat, one of the great Simpsons episodes. He's also the subject of a famous quote who I can't remember who's who said this, but it was one of his teammates on the Dodgers in the same 80, in the 80s. And he says in a, this guy, whoever it was, and you can look it up. I don't remember exactly who said it, but he said in a big moment, I'm just praying that they don't hit it to me. And if there's a little bit of extra time, I'm praying they don't hit it to sex. (laughs) Not a very nice thing to say about your teammate, but he's a mainstay of the Dodgers in the eighties and is the rookie of the year in 82 Uh, Cy Young awards. So Steve Carlton for the Phillies, you know, no surprise there. He's, he's one of the best pitchers in baseball in the seventies and early eighties. This is his fourth Um, and final Cy Young award in 1982. The other one is the the one to talk about, which is Pete Vukovic for the Milwaukee Brewers. If you're a certain age, which would be at least my age or younger, I don't remember the 82 Brewers. Pete Vukovic played Clue Haywood in the original major league. I didn't he know was, that till just this second. I just looked that up. He was the that he was the I remember because dad used to say that a lot. Now, to be fair, dad and I watched Major League together a lot of times where you probably weren't there. But um, Pete Vukovic was a pitcher for the Brewers. You know, had a decently long career. 82 was his his high watermark. Won a Cy Young, pitched in the World Series. But 
six years later and a little fatter played the slugger for the Yankees in major league in 1988, uh, clue Haywood, but here he's still just Pete Vukovic, the pitcher, uh, who wins the Cy Young in 1982 as a, uh, as a Milwaukee brewer. And this is the only brewer team to this date that's ever made the world series. And if you look up their page on baseball reference, their mustache performance is top rate. So I'm looking at, you know, in baseball reference, you go to a team's page. You got Robin Yount, who looks suspiciously like Rob, like uh, Larry Bird with a baseball hat on. And then you got Cecil Cooper, who's got sort of a very nicely trimmed Brit uh, beard and mustache. Gorman Thomas, the center fielder, has got a got a crazy mustache situation going on. Then you got Pete Vukovic. They have a young or an, an I shouldn't say a young. They have an aging Raleigh Fingers who has one of the all time great mustaches in baseball history. Uh, Jim Gardner, who's their second baseman, has got a, a little uh, little blonde mustache going. You got Mike Caldwell. You got a mustache roster on these 82 Brewers that is second to none in baseball histories. These guys, they're managed by Harvey Keen, who takes over actually midseason. We talk about teams who make the World Series or the Super Bowl or the playoffs or whatever after having their coach or manager fired midseason. This is another one. Uh, Buck Rogers is the coach in at the beginning of the season, gets fired midseason and is replaced by Har- Harvey Keen. And this team becomes known as Harvey's Wallbangers because of just how good they are offensively. They're hitting home runs. They're hitting, you know, doubles and triples, extra base hits off the wall. They got a bunch of guys with over 25 home runs led by Gorman Thomas with 39, Cecil Cooper, 32, Ben Ogilvie, Robin Yount, who who's the MVP of the American League in 1982, puts up. a He's a shortstop, and these are the numbers he puts up. He hits 331 with 29 home runs and 114 RBIs. And keep in lo- keep in mind, this is long before the days of Alex Rodriguez and even Derek Jeter or even Cal Ripken. So for a shortstop, I guess maybe other than Ernie Banks in the 60s, for a shortstop to put up these type of numbers in the early 1980s is really a big deal. And it carries the Brewers to the pennant and to the World Series in 1982. Yeah, where they meet the Cardinals, who win their first title since, what, 67? This would have been their first championship since Yeah, 67, yeah. What are they, 92 and 70 on the year? This is Keith Hernandez is on the team, Ozzie Smith. This is not Ozzie Smith. How was it his rookie year, right? No, No, because he started with San Diego. He's been in for a couple of years. It's his first year with the Cardinals. That's what it was. That's, That's where I was getting mistaken. It's Ozzie Smith's first year with the Cardinals, with Whitey Herzog still as the manager and also the GM. They uh, win the Eastern Division, and then in the playoffs, they uh, what was the playoff system? Postseason, they play the Braves in the first round of the playoffs. They end up winning that series three to three to nothing, and then play the Brewers in the World Series, where they come back from being down three to two. And they come back and win game six and game seven in 
St. Louis to win the World Series. This is the only World Series. Uh, this is the only World Championship in one of his final years for Jim Cotton, who is a guy we've talked about a lot over the last few months because not only was he inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame this year, we were there, Andrew and I, with my wife, Allison. And so we saw him inducted. He was a guy we were really happy for. So, yeah, this is the only championship for him. This is Keith Hernandez, his first championship before moving out of the Mets and winning one in 86. Like we said, Ozzie Smith and Herzog and these guys, they go back in 85. They go back in 87. But this is the only time they win in 1982. I want to just sort of double back on Robin Yount. A lot of people consider this 1982 season he has to be the best season by a position player in the 1980s. He wins the MVP. He hits 331, leads the league in hits, doubles, and total bases, wins the gold glove at shortstop, and wins the MVP award. 9.8 war. The only one who's close is Cal Ripken in 1984, who also has a 9.8 war. So Robin Yount, great player, Hall of Famer, but you don't necessarily think of him as sort of a dominant all-time great. But for one year, at least in 1982, he's the best player in Major League Baseball. Oh, yeah. And it's, uh, you know, it, it's sort of his weird early 80s era where like different teams flare up for a year. I mean, 84, it's like, the Tigers and the Padres are in the World Series, but the, this '82 Brewers team is, uh, like you said, it's the only, it's the only team for Milwaukee, like only Brewers team to make a World Series, and obviously they're in a different league now, but um, it's still, it's still the best Milwaukee Brewers team of all time. And a lot of Hall of Famers: Yount, Paul Molitor at third base at 25 years of age. Raleigh Fingers, who's 35, but coming off of his great years in Oakland a decade earlier, has sort of rejuvenated himself. After some years with the Padres, he's rejuvenated himself. And he had just actually, in 81, he'd won both the Cy Young and the MVP award. And in 82, in his um, it's not his final year in the majors, but it's, he's getting towards the end here, Fingers. And at 35 years old, he makes another all-star team, gets himself to another World Series. So, like you said, another one of those teams that for one year is a great, great team, even though they come up short to the Cardinals in the World Series. Did you, I had one more thing from baseball for for 1982. Did you have anything else to add? The only thing I had written down was that the Yankees had three different managers. Why don't you go ahead <laughs> and give us some information on that one? I mean, that's really all the information I had was just that they had three different managers. Who were their three managers? Gene Michael was one of them. I got to pull this back up here. But uh, do you have more information on that? No, go ahead. No, oh, that wasn't going to be your. Th- okay. No, mine is not Yankees related. Yeah. So the Yankees, Gene Michael starts the season as the manager, Bob Lemon, and then Clyde King. You know, just sort of, they'd won the, they'd won the pennant the year before. So they'd almost won the World Series the year before. And this year they have three different managers. Bob Lemon, who it's what is second time at least is the manager of the team. Mm-hmm. Um that, that was the only thing I had was just that, you know, kind of the beginning of the not the beginning of the circus for the Yankees, the beginning of the circus without any sort of payoff in nineteen 19- <laughs> Like in the past, you could at least go, yeah, it's a circus, but they're winning. Well, now it's a circus and they're not really winning. But 
that was all I had. What was your thing? I think we have to talk a little bit about Ricky Henderson. Good because he, in 1982, sets the single-season stolen base record with 130 stolen bases, and I believe that's still the record to this day, isn't it? I will look that up. I would be shy. It definitely hasn't been broken in the last 25 years. Like Just to put that in perspective, that's basically stealing a base a game. And which which means you have to a get on base almost every game and b steal a bit. So yeah, it's I gotta consider that the record. Are you the, looking at the same thing that I'm looking at? Previous one is Hugh Nickel from 1887. And look, I we've talked about this, and I think most people who know us know I love baseball history. You know, I love all sports history, and I don't like when people. You know, we've talked a lot about not our father specifically, but people, our father's generation who, who will say something like, Oh, kids these days, I don't know anything about the history of baseball or like they They don't say exactly like that, but they'll say like, well, you know, you don't know how good, you know, Bob Gibson was or Mickey whatever. Mantle. And then you'll mention something about Sandy or about Christy Matthewson. And they'll be like, Oh, who the hell? Like that's, that's too long ago. Who cares? We're not those people. Like we've done episodes on baseball in the 1880s. We've done, we've done, we've done episodes on baseball in the 1860s. We'll do, you know, I would, I'll do a whole episode on the 1912 World Series. Like, I love old time baseball. And I don't do the thing of like, when people go out, oh, Babe Ruth would suck today. Like, you can't even talk about that. Cause like, if Babe Ruth trying to hit a 98 mile an hour fastball, like, I don't like when people diminish history like that. We're talking about 18, a guy who stole eight, only eight more, by the way. In 1870, when the catcher still would have, that would have been a barehanded catcher, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. For many years subsequent, too. 1887? I mean, maybe they were starting to get gloves around that point. You're right. You're right. Whatever. Long story short, who do you think wins in a race between first and second base? Ricky (laughs) Henderson or or Hugh Nickel? (laughs) So I would also note that on this all-time stolen base list, number five in a single season is... 1887 Charles Comiskey, which has got to be the only guy who is fifth all time in a category and also owned a team for 30 years. By the way, there's a a book on him. I only read like the first chapter a few weeks ago, but he's another one. The the point of the book is basically like everything that like these movies have talked about with the 1919 World Series is pretty much crap. Mm -hmm. So we should do an episode on him, too. Yeah, no, absolutely. So the modern day record at this point is Lou Brock with 118 in 1974. And Ricky Henderson really wants to break this single season record. His manager is a guy by the name of Billy Martin, who is not all that eager to give him the green light. And he says, Ricky always tries to talk me into letting him run on his own. He hasn't asked me yet this year, but if he does, I'll just explain again why I don't want him to. So Martin, at the beginning of this 1982 season, doesn't want to give a lot of leeway to Ricky Henderson to steal bases. He doesn't want to give him what they call the green light, which is basically steal whenever you can. Like everybody else, Henderson's got to wait for the steal sign, you know, the signal to go and steal a base. Henderson starts stealing bases so quickly that 
Martin basically he wins Martin over. And at one point, Mar- Martin comes over to him and says, we're going to break this record. And so Martin starts having Ricky steal more and more and more and more and more. And Henderson ends up with 130 steals, which kind of blows away Brock's number. Lou Brock had 118. So he's got 12 more steals than Lou Brock does, which, you know, in a 162 game season is a pretty significant jump from what the previous record had been. And so now Henderson, the, the A's are terrible in 1982. And so Henderson, I think only finishes like ninth or 10th in MVP voting, but Henderson supported by Billy Martin, who was not necessarily one to let his flamboyant young players do whatever they wanted. Henderson breaks this single season record and sets the tone for this whole period of the 1980s where Ricky Henderson is the dominant sort of base stealer offensive player of the 1980s, really. Yeah. And ultimately ends up as the, what the all time steals leader and then plays another, how many years did he play after that? 10? <laughs> I think he played how many, what? He probably plays another 20 something years. Yeah. Well, I, okay. I, I was forgetting what year did he break the record? Oh, I don't know when he broke the all-time record. Oh, you mean you mean you don't mean ten years after this? You mean ten years? Oh, yeah, no, he plays no, I mean, until like two thousand three or something like that. The last year he's recorded is two, so he definitely broke the record when he was back with the A's. Yeah, because there's that famous picture of him holding the base over his head, and then he played his last year was oh three at forty four years old with the with Dodgers, Dodgers, right? Yeah. yeah so the year before that, yeah, so. <laughs> Yeah, he was he was everywhere late in his career. He kept kind of going back to the A's and then going somewhere else and then going back to the A's and going somewhere else. But there's people that have argued that Ricky Henderson is the best baseball player of the like the you know the last quarter century of the 21st of the 20th century, like you know, 75 to 2000. There's people that have made that argument. So he's he's definitely a hell of a player and it's funny because in 85 and we've talked about this at some point in the in the past in 1985, the Yankees fire Yogi Berra 16 games into the season, and Yogi Berra was Yogi Berra. Yogi Berra is not the character caricature that everybody thinks he is, but he was a guy who his players loved. They fire Yogi mm-hmm. Berra. They bring in Billy Martin for the what's it, I think this is probably the fourth of five Billy Martin tenures with the Yankees at this point, and everybody on the Yankees is angry that the Yankees have fired Yogi Berra and brought back Billy Martin. The only guy who's happy about it is Ricky Henderson because he loves Billy Martin from their time together in Oakland when Martin did everything he could to help Henderson break the record. (laughs) So gives you a little bit of an insight into the mind of Ricky Henderson too, I think. But so yeah, sort of like Gretzky, this is sort of a guy doing things that nobody had done before in the sport. Maybe not quite on the same scale, but the same type of thing. Yeah, it was just about one specific thing, whereas Gretzky was clearly breaking. Gretzky was everything. everything. Yeah, Henderson was the best all time at a certain thing, which is nothing to to be. It's nothing to diminish, but like Gretzky was the best all time at like six different things that make you the best player. Like, yeah. So 
we should close with football. But before we get to football, we want to do this kind of uh, everything else segment, which sometimes is kind of the most fun. And Andrew always comes up with some good things. So what else uh, what else happened in sports in 1982 that we think is worth talking about or mentioning? Sure. Let me just mention a couple things first. The Indy 500, um, it was at the, that point, it was the closest Indy 500 finish ever. Gordon Johncock beats uh, Rick Mears by 0.16 seconds. Like I said, at the time, the closest uh, Indy 500 ever. Bobby Allison won the Daytona 500. No triple crown winner to speak of because the Kentucky Derby winner, Gato Del Sol, did not run in the Preakness. Uh, they decided to hold the horse off to run in the Belmont, and uh, the horse came in second in the Belmont. So there was three different winners in the major triple crown races. Golf, you had uh, Craig Stadler won the Masters. Tom Watson won the U.S. and the British Open in men's tennis. Jimmy Connors won the U.S. Open and Wimbledon. The women's tennis is interesting because it was the height of Martina Navratilova's dominance, but also that Chris Everett was a very close second. So Martina Navratilova won the French Open. She won Wimbledon. But Chris Everett, who was Chris Everett Lloyd at the time, won the U.S. Open and the Australian Open. So they both split. They each won two of the major four women's tournaments. And then boxing. There's a couple of interesting things about boxing. This is sort of the um, it's the Larry Holmes era, but it's getting towards the end of the Larry Holmes era. Larry Holmes fought t- only twice in 1982 as the heavyweight champion in November. His second fight, he won a unanimous decision against Randall Cobb, not the wide receiver in the NFL. Um <laughs> But before that, he TKO'd Jerry Cooney in June of 1982. And we should probably dig a little bit into that real quick. Yeah, th- this fight is famous. It was um, one of the examples. I don't want to say it was the most recent example because that would diminish that it has happened since. But it was a more modern example of a quote unquote great white hope uh, scenario. A lot of the promotion to the fight was certainly things that would be not fly by modern eyes, so to speak, um, in terms of the racial aspect of it. I do want to make clear, though, too, just just to be fair, that one of the biggest culprits of that is Don King, who at one point screams out in a press conference, this is a black versus white fight. (laughs) So, oh, yeah, no, 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 no. then that's it. It doesn't come from Holmes. It doesn't come from Cooney. It's the promoters of the fight. Clearly, they notice a, a vein there, and they try to really play it up to inflame the fans. It's almost a pro wrestling thing. But the problem is when you play with that kind of fire at any point you're going to get some ugliness on the other side of it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And that's, yeah, you know, that's Jack Johnson against, uh, who did he fight? Mm-hmm. Jess Willard. That's Lewis and Schmeling. That that's a common theme throughout boxing history. That's unfortunate. Yeah. So Holmes ultimately ends up winning the fight. He TKOs Cooney in June of 82 in a um, hundred like degree a- day in Vegas. That's right. Was it outside in Vegas or was it 
Yeah, well, it, oh, let me see where was this fight held. Um, bah, 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 bah. I'm looking at the book here, and I don't see where exactly the fight. Can you find where the fight was was held? Yeah, I thought it was the MGM, but I'll I'll pull it up. Hang on, I'll get, let me get Larry Holmes's fight. Uh, I think it was Caesar's Palace. <laughs> okay, okay, it was, but it, that would be inside. Uh, maybe. I mean, I, I don't. Is that is that true? I mean, was it the same place where they did WrestleMania? Oh, that was a parking lot. Oh, okay. That, they, they they literally created that arena just for that show. The um, the book I'm reading says that the temperature had dropped to 89 degrees, but with the lights and the cameras, it would be hotter than that for the fighters. So the heat was definitely a factor in the fight, whether it was inside or outside. Yeah. So let me set up uh, Holmes had been the hey, champion Cooney on the other hand. To be the anticipation for a Holmes Cooney confrontation began to take shape in early 1981. The fight took place a year later. Don King and manager Dennis Rappaport began one of the mass, most massive and racially toned campaigns in boxing history to raise public interest for a fight. Only one of those two uh, things is good. Uh, Sylvester Stallone hung out with Jerry Cooney. Uh, white supremacist groups announced they would have agents ready to shoot Holmes. At the moment he entered the ring, which is not great. Also, probably uh, not true. I would imagine. It said the, the the fight was held in the hotel parking lot, so probably actually where the same place WrestleMania <laughs> Nine was held. Probably the same place WrestleMania Nine did take place eleven years later. By round thirteen, Cooney seemed to believe he would lose the fight and was just trying to last the fifteen rounds. Uh, midway through the round, uh, Holmes cross landed on Cooney's left cheek. Cooney's legs buckled. Cooney's trainer prevented him from doing so by throwing the towel. So fight holds the attendance record for a boxing match in Nevada with 29,214 paid. Do you know who the referee was? No. Mills Lane. Okay. Mills Lane. The other, go, on, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say the uh, Mills Lane was the, the famous, the referee for the Tyson Holyfield fight. The second one where Tyson bit Holyfield's ear. And then the went other, on to parlay that to like three or four years of celebrity, mm, whether it was having was his a, own. He had his own judge show similar to the people's court, the judge Wapner type of thing. He was the he was also the, the ref in celebrity death match, which was a big uh, deal at the time. Yeah. And he was uh, he was also he was on brisk commercials and he was he was everywhere. Again, it's one of those things where it's like it's a piece of late 90s cultural whatever you want to call it that you don't think about if you if you weren't a teenager in the late 90s you probably don't know who mills lane is but we were so we do and then the last boxing thing i want to talk about it's not a heavyweight fight but it's a, a very significant fight uh november 13th 1982 ray boom boom mancini uh defended the lightweight championship against number one contender uh duck Koo kim who was south korean before the fight, Kim struggled to shed his weight to meet the 135-pound limit. Kim had said something along the lines of either he dies or I die before the fight. Mancini beat him solidly in the 12th round. Mancini hit Kim in the chest. Kim went down to a knee, which I guess they didn't rule as a knockdown. Uh, but then he went down again in the 13th round. So anyway, the long story short, Kim ends up going to the hospital and right after the fight, he falls into a coma and dies a few days later. 
Kim's mother, who had been at the fight, committed suicide a few months after that. Oh, jeez. The referee committed suicide less than a year later in July of 83. So the fighter died after the fight, and then his mother and the referee died. Said uh, Ray Mancini blamed himself for King's death. He defended his titles a few times after that, but was never the same fighter. And then sort of the long story of it is rules were implemented. The Nevada State Athletic Commission imposed a standing eight count, which allows a referee to call a knockdown, even if the boxer is not down, but on the verge of being knocked down. Another rule change called for a boxer's license to be suspended for 45 days after he's knocked out. And this also led to the most significant change, the WBC, which was not a sanctioning body for this fight. But after this, they announced they were going to reduce title fights from 15 rounds to 12. WBA and IBF followed suit in 1987. And the WBO, which was created in 1988, only ever has ever done 12 round fights. This was sort of the end of 15 round title fights uh, in boxing. And that's a lasting legacy. I mean, at least one of the Ali Frazier fights went 15 rounds. So this is not a first and third, the first and third. So the, the 15 rounds, you know, you all the Rocky films, you know, they all go 15 rounds. It's not 15 rounds for the title is basically what it is for, but 50, 60 years, probably from sometime in the thirties until right about now. So that's a, that's a major sea change in boxing. And I remember watching a Holyfield fight towards the end of his career where they were like, he's one of the only guys left who's fought a 15 round fight. Mm -hmm. I remember them saying that. That was, that was the first time I'd ever kind of connected like, oh, yeah, there's not 15 round fights anymore. And that was what like movies were. So before we get to football, I think you have something you need to do. Pro wrestling. Yeah, you got to give us the wrestling flavor. You did that in 20, you did it in 41, you did it in 86. We got to know yep. what, what was going on in pro wrestling in 80 in 82. So in 82, the territories were still very strong. It was still a very, uh, a very regional business in the NWA. Ric Flair was in the middle of his first reign. If you look really close at it, he lost the title about four different times overseas that year, but um, won it back in ways that were never acknowledged in the mainstream press, but he had won the title in 81 from dusty Rhodes. In early 83, he would lose it to Harley Race to set up uh, the first Starcade. In the WWF in 1982, Bob Backlund was still in the middle of his four to five year championship reign. Was it still the WWF at that point? No, it was the WWF. That was like 79. But okay. the big, if you're going to do one top line story from wrestling in 1982, middle of the year, nobody knows the exact date, which is kind of weird, but around June 1st, Capital Sports, which had been the group that ran the WWF for about 40 years, put on by Vincent James McMahon, sold the World Wrestling Federation to Titan Sports, owned by Vincent Kennedy McMahon, the guy everybody today knows as Vince McMahon, uh, in the middle of 1982. So Vince McMahon uh, bought the WWF from his father the middle of 1982. It wasn't until 83 where he really got aggressive and went national and started um, breaking the historical territorial boundaries that had been around since the 50s. Ultimately, at the very, very end of 1983, he brings in Hulk Hogan. But 82 is the year that he 
buys the company from his father and runs it for 40 years. 40 years, until, yeah. Until literally this year when uh, when that all changed. But that's by far the significant moment in professional wrestling in 1982. In the WF itself, in terms of in the ring, the big deal in 1982 was there was the debut of Jimmy Snuka, who kind of... Um, ushered in a new era of wrestling. He was sort of the bridge between the seventies and the early eighties where the crowd saw him jumping off the top of steel cages and was like, wow, that's, uh, that's what we want to see. We don't want to see Bob Backlund anymore, but, uh, that's, um, you know, that, that's sort of the undercard to Vincent Kennedy McMahon buying the WWF. And rarely is there a time for the next 40 years where Vince McMahon is not the most important person in pro wrestling. Yep, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. So the NFL season of 1982 is odd. I would have to say, to say the least. There's a strike. What did you learn when you were researching the strike? Because I know we we texted about this earlier over the weekend, and it's it's strange. Yeah, it's it's bizarre in the way that. It's not that well known. I mean, we've talked about the 94 strike in baseball, which was, I think for our age, it feels like the 94 strike was in a much different era than the 82 NFL strike, which is probably true. There's, you can get a day by day breakdown of the 94 baseball strike and, and, and other work stoppages and, but the 82 NFLPA strike, we know very little about. Like the 87 one with the uh, replacement players and stuff, you you even know a little more about. But this was a strike that cost them seven of the 16 games. And I, I have an article from Len Pascarelli at ESPN.com. This article is 15 years old now. So it was written in 27, 2007. 25 years after the strike and it just it kind of talks about the it's like the most detail i've ever seen which is still not super detailed but um i mean a big part of it was the nfl players association wanted a they wanted a a certain revenue split from the owners and I mean, the, the the ending conclusion is the players got almost none of what they wanted, which is a theme of, the- of NFL strikes. The same thing happened in 87. Yeah. So I'm, tr- I'm trying to get because I feel like this talks about, you know, basically what happened on a on a sort of um, blow by blow. Let me see if this works. All right. Um, so the strike begins after at the end of week two i guess it would have been so it's like september 21st it goes until november 16th so it's almost a full eight weeks the players union had wanted a a wage scale based on the revenue of the league they wanted 55 percent of all league revenues um which was the sort of the main story the players ultimately ended up basically overthrowing their own union and gradually going back to play to the point where it wasn't much of a strike to begin with. 
the thing I did think it was interesting was that the NFLPA put on two all-star games that virtually nobody went that nobody went to basically. Yeah, it was like a couple thousand people went to each game, one in LA and one in Miami, maybe something like that. Basically, what they ended up with was they got some concessions for they got some concessions for like retired players funds and things like that. So I have an article here from 1987 talking about the article from 1982. This is from the LA times. Okay. The article is written by Gene Wojciechowski actually, but just kind of talking about was they wanted this 55% revenue split. They also wanted a minimum salary scale that guaranteed players certain pay depending on years of service pay increased medical and retirement benefits. The owners refused. They went on strike just basically as soon as the end of the week two Giants Packers game on Monday Night Football. Union members officially struck struck at the end of that game. Ultimately, the players basically caved. They didn't get anything close to what they wanted. A bunch of players started crossing the picket line, which... There were no games, so what were they crossing the picket line to do? I think basically they indicated their their willingness to cross the picket line. Uh-huh. Um, now, obviously, in '87, guys actually did cross the picket line, but um, it basically just ended up in a point where the players kind of caved. There's really no better way to put that, which was they the players wanted to get a bunch of things they weren't going to get them and they ultimately ended up just taking a certain cash amount of payment it's interesting that i saw that they part of the deal they tried to get was that to add a 17th game to the schedule for 1983 to make up the players wanted this yep. to make up yep. some of the pay they lost in the strike of 82 and the owners wouldn't go for it where these days it took them years to get the players union to agree to a 17 game schedule. Ultimately they, the owners won and will get an 18 game schedule eventually, but it's just interesting to see that it was the players pushing for that just to recoup some of the money as opposed to the owners. So this is taken from sports illustrated and I have to say what the players are proposing here is insane. Now, I don't know if this was what their final demand ended up being, where it was basically like they had a plan. And this is keep in mind that this is before free agency. So this was doable. Then they basically wanted to eliminate player negotiation. Did you see any of this? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. They basically wanted to eliminate player negotiations for salaries. So here's what they said. All players would get the same annual base wage of 127000 in their third season. Any player who made the Pro Bowl would get an extra 6000 for each time he'd play in the game. Players who start and play every offensive or defensive or special teams down would get an extra $1,750 for each game. The players would select 272 top performers for a season based on position, such as the 10 outstanding centers, 20 best offensive tackles, 32 best linebackers, 10 top kickers. Each of the 272 picked would earn an extra 20,625. 
there would be team performance bonuses calculated on stats in such categories as rushing yardage, number of sacks per passing attempt, fewest yards penalized, most field goals blocked, and so on. The units that rank one to five in 11 different categories would get $186,000 to divide among the players in proportion to downs played with that unit or team. Six special team units would divvy up 114,000. There would be a playoff pool too. a wild card team that goes on to win the Super Bowl would divide up. That's not as crazy. And then there would be a discretionary fund of $500,000 for each team that they could use for bonus payments for, I guess, guys who did well thought about in the context of modern sports. That's pretty out there. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's so detached from what a players union would want these days. Like it's almost the exact opposite in a lot of ways in terms of like tying things to performance bonuses and things like that. Yeah. I mean, and I I work for the federal government. It reminds me of almost like a federal government bonus. Like, well, if your unit does this, you get this and there's, there's no like room to negotiate on your own behalf. But I guess you have to realize that free agency was at least 10 years away from the NFL. I think it was like, what, 92, 93, the free agency came to the NFL. So what you what you consider unrestricted free agency, I think, was between 93 and 94. Yeah. Yeah. So it's and then I guess there were some things where like after they had agreed in principle, there was like additional stuff. And then the like the players were debating on that. And then the owners we're like, no, hang on. We agreed already. We're, we're going to pull that off the table. There was like a lot of different things happen, but I mean, the basics of it is that the players got some token cash, but no structural improvements really. And I think it should also be noted that this was the first time that a major North American sport had had a strike that actually cost league games that actually meant anything. I think that, MLB had gone on strike in the in spring training once or twice, and maybe the I think the NFL had done that once too. And I know that I, in the year before in baseball, the '81 season definitely. Oh, you're right. I'm sorry. I'm 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 missing a year. You're right. So so maybe you know it would be just the opposite point that they were at a point now in the early '80s where player strikes had become sort of a tool that was in the toolbox, but it was still it was relatively new and you end up with this weird nine game NFL season. And much like baseball had done the year before they decide they're going to have 18. They, they expand the playoffs. And so eight teams from each conference make the playoffs. So you get some interesting things. You get some teams with some interesting records, including the, uh, the Cleveland Browns making the playoffs with a four and five, this is like the only Green Bay Packers playoff appearance from the Ice Bowl to the Holmgren years, I think, or something crazy well, like that. Maybe so, with a year or two. So they, they they made a playoff. They made the playoffs in seventy two. Yeah, they um, did. They did. You're right. You're right. This is their only. This is the only playoff game at Lambeau Field between the Ice Bowl and I believe nineteen ninety four. Because 70, 72, they, uh, when I looked this up, 72, they played like a road playoff game. And then in 93 was the first year they made the playoffs. And they, I think they won on the road in round one. 
and then lost to Dallas in like the divisional playoffs or something. So this was this was in '82. They were the three seed. They played St. Louis on January 8th at Lambeau Field. And from what I have written down here, it's the only playoff. It was their first playoff game at Lambeau Field since the Ice Bowl and until, uh, I believe, 94. So crazy. It's funny because they don't even call it the playoffs. They call it like the the Super Bowl tournament. <laughs> they, 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 they go out of their way to to brand it the Super Bowl tournament for some reason. The other thing that's interesting that I should note about, and you you mentioned this, you might have even mentioned this on your um on your show, not on this podcast, but the whole thing where CBS is so desperate for games during this whole thing that they get the rights to Division Three football, and Pat Summerall and John Madden do like a. I'll I'll pull up the exact, but they do like yeah. a they do like a game between you know basically two like division three teams that are just you know nobody you've ever even have heard of. Yeah, so I guess it was like the contracts for the major conferences were already locked in. Pat Summerall for J- and John Madden, for example, covered a game between Baldwin College and Wittenberg. NBC acquired the rights to Canadian Football League games, and both networks aired their respective games with NFL-like production values. The first four CFL and games NBC showed were all blowouts. However, with poor ratings, and the network gave up. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, so like I guess they couldn't just be like, "Oh, well, we'll cover you know Notre Dame or or whatever," because they all had contracts already. So they just went to. Wittenberg, where's Wittenberg College? It's in uh, Minnesota. Got to be Minnesota. I have no clue, but I'm guessing Minnesota. Wittenberg University, Springfield, Ohio. Okay, I was close enough. But yeah, just all of a sudden they're calling like very minor league games. But um, yeah, so the, the the sort of summary of this is: 82 strike ended. Players revolt against their own union. So they end up getting, you know, more teams that are going to make the playoffs. So that's at least more teams that are going to get uh, that are going to get any kind of, um, you know, postseason money or anything like that. Um, it ultimately ends up being the AFC title game is is a game definitely worth mentioning. The AJ Dewey game, which is famous in in this uh, metropolitan area for the Jets. A game against the Dolphins or AJ Dewey. What do you intercept three different passes? And yes. I can't think of this game without thinking about Joe Beningo. If you're uh, if you're a New Yorker of any sort of uh, bro, the state. AJ Dewey game where it was like it was like a horrendously muddy game down at Joe Robbie Stadium in in Miami. And uh, who would have been the Jets quarterback? It wasn't O'Brien yet. It would have been uh, was it Richard Todd? It was Richard Todd. Yeah, yeah. And just he threw three interceptions to AJ Dewey. The last one of which was returned for a touchdown. Yeah. So the, 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 the Miami ends up winning 14 to nothing and getting to the Super Bowl. Miami was the number two seed in the NFC. It was Washington who beats, and this almost can't be overstated. Washington beats Dallas in the NFC championship game, and it's you know, for 15 years, Dallas had been sort of the team in the NFC. I know Washington got to the Super Bowl in 72 against the Dolphins, but uh, 
you know, for Washington, a huge sort of thing to not only win to get to the Super Bowl, but to have gotten past the Tom Landry Cowboys in 1982. And Joe Gibbs later says that that, you know, or not later says he says at the time, well, that was our Super Bowl beating the Cowboys that that Redskins Cowboys Super Bowl was or sorry, that Redskins Cowboys rivalry was a big part of the 1970s and the NFC East because the Giants and the Eagles were both pretty terrible. So that was, a, as were the Cardinals, that was a big deal in the 70s, that Cowboys-Redskins rivalry in the NFC East. And wasn't that, was that the last time that the Cowboys won a playoff game or got to a playoff game or something like that under Tom Landry? You know... They might have snuck in there at some point. It wouldn't surprise me if they did just because so many teams made the playoffs. Did they not make the playoffs the year that they, one of the years that they had Herschel Walker? Okay, so in 83, they lost to the Rams. And then 84, they were 9 and 7, 10 and 6. Okay, so they were in it. They were in it in 85. They lost to the Rams, didn't make it in 86. So yeah, they were in it. 80 after 85 with Landry is when they start to really go downhill 78 seven and eight and 87 another strike year and then 88 they're three and 13 and that's when Switzer or Switzer got that's when Jerry Jones boots him and brings in Jimmy Johnson so they weren't as terrible for as much of the 80s as you might think okay you know I knew like through 86 they were good before we get to the uh the Super Bowl there's a game I need we need to um to talk about. Do you know what game this is? I do not. It's not the AJ Dewey game, bro. No, no, no. This is it's we're going back to the regular season, and I, I should have done this earlier, but so the game we need to talk about. Let me see if I can get the full I might need to I think I gotta go to pro football reference. Bear with me one second. Uh all right. So I want to talk about the Bengals for just one second. The Bengals who had um, the Bengals who had won the AFC championship game the year before, uh, who won the AFC, got the Super Bowl, lost the 49ers. This is a game. It's after the strike. It's uh, it's a Monday night football game. December 20th, 1982. For years. I know my, where this is going. For years, my father had talked about how he remembered when my mother went into labor with my brother, my brother wasn't due to be born until December 27th. So it was another week or so it was a Monday night football game. And for years, this was before the internet or anything. All my father would say, like, Oh, it was a barn burner. That's all I remember him saying was it was a barn burner. And then, you know, after the internet came around and I, I forget why it took me. So, but at one point I was like, I should finally look this up. And I looked up the actual game and this was Monday night football, December 20th, 1982, the chargers and the Bengals. It was actually a rematch of the AFC championship game the year before, because that had been the freezer bowl the year before. And he was right. The final score, the chargers beat the Bengals 50 to 34 in this game. It was 24 to 17 at halftime. Ultimately, the Chargers ended up winning 50 to 34. So I don't know at what point my father was told that they needed to leave to go to the hospital <laughs> for my brother to be born. But um, it definitely did qualify as a barn burner that he had talked about. And uh, 
I just, I found out that that whole game is on YouTube. <laughs> I, I looked with the commercials, by the way, not, not the full commercials, but be like the, um, tonight's game is brought to you by Exxon, like with Keith Jackson or, or, or Al Michaels saying that, but I just figured I, I needed to at least mention that because that was the whole context of us doing this episode is, uh, is your, your birth 40 years ago in December. A couple points. First of all, it's always cool to see who the games were brought to you by before there was an internet because it's always just, you know, it's tangible project. It's gas, it's beer, it's all those types of things. Well, and, and it's even today, it was funny because, like, well, just today's the day after the election and watching like YouTube videos and like I'm getting normal commercials again. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, annoying commercials for like McDonald's or like Apple or whatever. I'm like, for the last six weeks, it's just been different political offices. But go ahead, sorry. So I have to, I have to go on a little, di- a little bit of a digression here. Um, my son, little Thomas Aaron, who was born three weeks ago today, no, three weeks ago Thursday. On the, he was born on the twentieth of October. He was due on the twenty seventh, and we went into the hospital on the nineteenth, and he was born on the twentieth, and. Andrew and I were texting about the Yankee Astro playoff game the whole time, including during the delivery. And I texted him eventually and I was like, oh, by the way, my son was just born. And so after my son was born and um, uh, my wife might not want me to to tell the story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Um, After he was born and sort of, you know, the doctors were still in there, but we were kind of like, you know, in the recovery period, there was like a pop up to second base and i think it was the astros were in the field and the second baseman and the first baseman almost bumped into each other and this is how i know i have a a wife who loves sports she goes oh 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 because the second baseman and the first baseman always bumped into each other and like two nurses turned around and looked at her and they're like are you okay are you okay and she goes oh yeah no i'm sorry i'm just watching the baseball game (laughs) <laughs> two guys almost bumped into each other so that's well, my and, that's and, my and wife that's, and and that's to uh to sort of piggyback on that like my girlfriend and a few other people was like that night where my brother and i are texting and it, and the next day and whatever and it's like oh yeah no it's like oh, how's your brother doing i'm like yeah, i'm in texting him i was like well, how's everything going with the baby i'm like oh we're not talking about that <laughs> like we we were we were texting about the Yankee Astro game or whatever, and it's like it, it that's just the nature of 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 the way it is. It's like, oh, how's everything going? I'm like, oh, it's pretty pissed that the Yankees can't do anything with runners in scoring position. And my girlfriend Maureen is like, well, no, with the baby, I'm like, oh, he'll let me know if he wants to. <laughs> well, let me take that even a step further. Uh, a, a guy I know from high school texted me. He hadn't texted me. I think I think it was Game Four. Whatever game was on a Saturday night, Yankees Astros, and it was the night the like two nights after the baby was born, and uh, he was still in the hospital, but I was home, and I was watching the Yankee game, and this was the game the Yankees got blown out in. It was was, it, was that game four? No, it was game three. Game three, they got blown out in. And my friend texts me, he's like, "Hey, you know, I want to bitch to you about the Yankees, but first off, how have you been?" And I'm like, I'm pretty good, but, you know, you know, doing well. My wife just had a baby two days ago and he goes, oh, OK, like um, 
I won't bother you about the Yankee game because you're probably not watching it. And I said to I wrote back to him, I said, well, you're right. I'm not watching it. But it's not because I'm home. It's not because of the baby. But I turned it off in disgust <laughs> two innings ago. <laughs> and I'm watching. I, I was watching Saturday night's main event from like 1985. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'm like, if it's anything about the last two innings, I, I don't know. But it's got nothing to do with having a baby. I just turned it off in disgust two innings ago. So anyway, um, we digress there because these episodes aren't long enough. We had to we had to add 10 minutes to them. But the 82 season is interesting. I do have to say, though, unlike wins some, the MVP, we need to at least mention that we do. And I was going to get to that. Unlike some of these seasons, I feel like uh, some of these shortened seasons, whether it's strikes, war, COVID, you know, whatever. I think it's pretty clear that the Redskins were the best team in the NFL that year. Eight and one. Their, their kicker, like you said, is the MVP, which is something you'll never see before or since in any sport. I mean, you know, like for a, a kicker, it would be like what's a, what's a good example? It would be like having, a you know, a, a setup man win MVP in Major League Baseball. You just you don't see it. And Mark Mosley is the guy's name. And I, to this day, I've not been able to figure out what it was about his season that was so incredibly impressive that he won the MVP. Yeah. I mean, this is definitely an era before guys are hitting like 60 yard. Like, I feel like for a kicker to win MVP, he'd have to be kicking like guys do now in 1982. Like, oh, nobody else could hit more than a 38-yard field goal, and he was hitting them from 55? Like, here's his line. And keep in mind, again, short season, nine games. I get it. 21 field goals attempted, 20 field goals made. His long is 48 yards. Even in those days, 48 yards? I mean, Tom Dempsey was like 12 years before this, like field goals over 50 yards had to be a big deal. Even then, like a long of 48 yards. And here's the other thing. 16 of 19 on extra points. The guy missed three extra points. If a guy misses three extra points now, they cut him. And this guy was MVP when he missed three extra points. That's yeah, pretty ridiculous. I'm sure, could, I'm sure we could find out. a. am sure we could find a guy who should have been the MVP more. Yeah. I mean, Theisman with Theisman was the MVP the following year. I think I want to say, because Theisman definitely won an MVP. In 83. Well, I know from like my limited time living in DC, they talked about how, most people consider that 83 Washington team to be their best team of that era. They just ran into the Raiders and Marcus Allen in that Super Bowl. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. They Theismann was the MVP in 83. They were 14 and two that year. They beat the Rams 51 to seven in the divisional round. And then they beat the, they edged out the 49ers in the, NFC title game and the, the Raiders were only 12 and 40. The Redskins were the best team in 82. 
I think there's no question about that. Or in 83, I should say. And it's a weird year, but I mean, to give a kicker who missed three extra points the the MVP award, that's crazy. I mean, how many defensive guys have even won the MVP in the last 50 years? The only one that comes to mind is LT. And they're giving this to, I mean, didn't Alan Page maybe won one in the 70s, but they're giving this to a kicker? It's pretty crazy. It says it says he beat out Dan Fouts by two votes. So I'm trying to see what Dan Fouts's numbers looked like that year. Uh, Dan Fouts. So we can get his stats here. Oh. I, I mean, they're gonna have to consider for Dan Fouts to have finished second. I have a feeling when I look at these, I'm gonna be like, how did he not win this? Uh, Dan would, Fouts is. I think so. He went two of four, two of four of three thirty passing for twenty eight eighty three passing yards, seventeen touchdowns, eleven interceptions, which is not great, but like that's good enough to beat a kicker, I would think. Yeah, you would think so. So. Real quick, th- this is a good Redskin team. They got Hall of Famers, John Riggins at running back. Riggins, who has an amazing game in the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 17 against the Dolphins, wins the MVP. This is sort of the signature game in the career of a Hall of Fame running back in John Riggins. You know, the diesel. They've got Art Monk. Can we just say the hogs. I mean, that's, that's yeah. sort of like the main error for the hogs. Yeah. The hogs, which is the nickname for the offensive line for Washington and Russ Grimm, who's in the hall of fame, Joe Jacoby, who's his, um, you know, next to him. Grimm is the left guard. Jacoby's the left tackle. Jacoby is not in the hall of fame, but he's a four-time pro bowler. He's on the all eighties team. A lot of people think he should be in the hall of fame. Jacoby wins all three super bowls with the Redskins all the way through to, 91, as does Russ Grimm. Incidentally, Russ Grimm's take a look at Russ Grimm's football reference page. Russ Grimm, yeah, who's the Hall of Fame guard for the Redskins in the 80s? Let me check. Can you? I know you're on your phone. Can you get a picture of him on your thing? Yeah, I'm sure I can. His his pro football reference picture. Pro football reference picture. Yeah, on his football reference picture page. Look at his picture. Okay. Do you see it? I I think so. What am I looking at? The man is 58 years old in that picture. (laughs) That's not a picture from his playing days. He's got a polo shirt on. As a coach, like, all right, there you go, Russ Grimm. Yeah, that's him as a coach. Yeah, but that's like that's a horrible picture of the guy. He kind of looks like every coach. What? He kind of looks like every coach. Yeah, no, I know. It's it's an odd picture for a guy's football reference page. But anyway, they got they got Art Monk in his second year who goes on. He Art Monk is also in the Hall of Fame. So they got one, two, three Hall of Famers on the offense, including another guy in Joe Jacoby at left tackle, who people think probably should be a hall of famer is Daryl green. 
I guess Daryl Green's not on the team quite yet in um in eighty two. I thought he was, but I guess he's not I guess he's not there quite yet, Daryl Green. But you know, it's a really good you're right. The following year, eighty three, when they lose to the Raiders, is a much better team in the minds of Washington fans, but you know, this 82 team is the one that um that wins the Super Bowl, so you gotta give them some credit there. So this is also, I think we should mention, a very odd year for the Dolphins. They're only they draft Marino in this year's draft in the 1983 draft after this offseason. They got a guy by the name of David Woodley, who is maybe the worst quarterback ever to start a start a Super Bowl for a for a team. In you know, 50, well, it's crazy to think the Dolphins are in the Super Bowl twice in three years, and in '84 they had Marino, who had just broken all these records, and two years before that they were in the Super Bowl with like David Woodley, who's a guy who doesn't get a lot of you know, who's like you said, is one of the worst guys to ever start a Super Bowl. A guy by the name of Fulton Walker returns a kickoff for the Dolphins for a soup for a touchdown in. Super Bowl uh, 17 against the Redskins. He uh, four four kickoff returns for 190 yards and a touchdown, setting a Super Bowl record for most kick return yards and the highest single game yards per return average, including a record 98 yard kickoff return for a touchdown in the second quarter. First kickoff ever to be returned for a touchdown in Super Bowl history. The Still hasn't been a punt 40 years later. There still hasn't been a punt returned for a touchdown in what 56, 57 years of the Super Bowl. So that's crazy to think about. But this is the in Super Bowl 17. This is the first kickoff return for a touchdown. So mm. a good solid win by the Redskins over Miami. They fired up that diesel. Yeah, there's the. I just played that on my phone, but you might not have heard it. I thought I heard something, but I thought it was just an echo. <laughs> Bump up that diesel. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, one of the better one of the better teams in Redskin history. Not as good as the team the following year, but it also sets off a sort of an interesting mini dynasty for Washington that they win uh, three Super Bowls in what? Nine years with three different quarterbacks under Joe Gibbs. So, you know. Montana, who was a Notre Dame guy, had won the Super Bowl the year before. Theismann, a year later, does it. Another Notre Dame guy for the Redskins in eighty three, in eighty two. So maybe not a classic soup. Certainly not a classic Super Bowl. Maybe not a classic season of it. Only nine games, but the beginning of the period when the Redskins hard to believe now, but a period when the Redskins or their you know whatever they're called you know Commanders these days are. A, a force to be reckoned with in the NFC for the next decade. It's funny because, like, to me, Washington up until the mid 2000s, you'd always hear these reports about, like, oh, they're the biggest franchise in football. Like, they're the most profitable franchise in football. They're the, they're the richest team. And this kind of, uh, they've lived on these three titles 82, 87, 91. Now it, things have changed the last 10 years or so, but you know, they've made a lot of hay on Riggins and the hogs and 82 and 87 and 91. But this was sort of the, if you ask any, I feel like fan of, of this franchise to say like, what was the golden age 
they're going to tell you John Riggins and the Hogs in the early 80s. Even though they won in 87, they won in 91. You know, arguably 91 was their best team because it was a full season, wasn't strike shortened. It was at the height of the NFC East with the Giants and the Cowboys on their way up and the Eagles and everything. I think most people, if you said like to a, a, a fan of that franchise right now, what's the golden age? They say the early 80s and this team. Yeah, absolutely. Riggins. Absolutely. Riggins, Riggins yep. running Wah. is kind of the definitive. Did you do it again? Wow. <laughs> So I think there's one more thing we have to mention. We haven't done much college football, but there's at least one moment that I think we have to mention. Did, did you want to kind of give an overview of college football if you have it? And then we'll talk about one particular day in 1982 in college football. I mean, you had the, uh, the you talk about the Sugar Bowl, the Penn State and Georgia uh, national, the de facto national championship game. Is that what you're talking about? I mean, you had... Uh, so what were you, was this the, the band on the field game? Yes, this is the, the play Cal versus Stanford, November 20th, 1982, almost exactly 40 years ago. Okay. So go, go ahead with that. And then I'll talk about sort of the, the overall college football season. So there's this great rivalry um, between Cal and Stanford. Uh, there's something called the ax, which is the trophy that's given to the winner of the game. Every year they are uh, it originally appears in 1899 at a cal stanford baseball games um the stanford faithful were using it to cut blue and gold ribbons to taunt the cal fans blue and gold being the the cal colors a hard-fought game on november 20th 1982 at the end of the fourth quarter near the end of the fourth quarter cal held a 19 to 17 lead Stanford quarterback, guy by the name of John Elway, leads his team to a field goal, sort of one of the first of many great end-of-the-game drives by John Elway. Clock shows only four seconds to go, and Stanford ahead 20-19. to 19. Uh, Cal play-by-play announcer Joe Starkey says only a miracle can save the Bears. Four seconds left, basically only time for the kickoff. Stanford players are on the sidelines celebrating the field goal and they run out onto the field, which costs them 15 yards. So the kickoff is now coming from the 25 rather than the 40, which means that Stanford gets, or I'm sorry, rather Cal gets a much uh, better advantage for running back the kickoff. The Stanford band heads to the end zone, ready to play the victory song. The, kickoff goes to Cal and they pick up the ball and the crowd starts to count backwards. A uh, guy by the name of Kevin Moen picks up the ball for Cal, starts running, laterals the ball overhand to one of his teammates by the guy named Rogers. And if you hear, if you listen to the quote, they say the ball is still loose as they get it to Rogers and Rogers uh, gets the ball and he's almost picked off by uh, a Stanford player he pitches it to uh, running back Dwight Garner. Dwight Garner takes the ball. He takes his first hit at the Cal 49 from a Stanford player. He shovel passes the ball back to Rogers and Rogers starts up field. And then he laterals to another player, a guy by the name of Ford. 
And then Ford throws himself into the three uh, Stanford players while at the same point tossing the ball over his shoulders back to the gentleman by the name of Kevin Moen. Moen uh, skips up what's now the fifth lateral and he runs through, runs down the Stanford sideline, sidesteps the tuba player, runs through 15 other band members, and then he runs right into the trombone player. Trombone, not a light instrument. And the fans listening here, oh my God, the most amazing, sensational, traumatic, heart-rending, exciting, thrilling finish in the history of college football. Cal wins the game 25 to 20. They get to take back the axe and they win the game 25 to 20. And this is, this is from a book from about 20 years ago, but to this day, every time the ax changes hands, the school that has it changes the final score of the game <laughs> from 1982. That's inscribed on it. The signature moments that you hear about when you talk about sort of crazy finishes in the history of sports. And it happened just about exactly 40 years ago on November 20th, 1982. Yeah. And that, that's, I mean, the sort of like every game now ends in laterals and pitches and things like that. And none of them are ever more crazy than that because the play continued. Like the fact that there were like, if he had gotten, if the ball carrier had gotten tackled after running into the trombonist, it would have been, it's like, you know what I mean? It's not like, Oh, and the band was on the field. So they stopped the game and gave them the ball. Like that was just like, Oh no, that's what happens. Like, <laughs> Oh yeah. The, no, the, the band was on the field. It's really a play without modern precedent. And that's a good thing. I mean, you're not going to see. It's almost like something out of like 1905 in baseball, but it happened in the eighties. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It happened in the eighties and happened on live television. So just real quick from like a national uh, college football stamp championship standpoint, um, Penn state won the national championship. They played in a, uh, this was sort of the era of uh, luckily an independent was involved. So Penn state was able to play Georgia in the national championship game instead of, if they'd been in a conference and were tied into a different game, you wouldn't get it. Mm -hmm. Penn state was independent. So they ended up in the national championship game against Georgia, the uh, Georgia Bulldogs who were led by the Heisman trophy winner of Herschel Walker. Uh, but Penn state ends up beating them 27 to 23 and win the national championship. So that's how the 1982 college football season ended. Yeah. And so lot, lots of excitement in 1982. It's kind of a year where you got a lot of people who would be big figures in the 80s, whether it's Jordan Gretzky. We talked, you know, you mentioned Herschel Walker, who we talked a lot about a few months ago when we did our USFL episode and what a what a figure he was there. And, you know, we, we talked about, you know, boxing with Larry Holmes and you know, kind of the, the very end of a specific era in boxing and the dawning of another era. So kind of just getting a kind of Magic Johnson just coming into his own with the Lakers. So 
it's an interesting year in sports. Maybe not one signature moment, maybe with the exception of that Cal Stanford game, but a lot to dive into. And it was 40 years ago and it was the year of my birth. So I thought it was worth getting into. So, yeah, not not as good as 86. But a good year. nonetheless. <laughs> well, objectively speaking, I would have to agree that that's the case because there's a lot <laughs> that happened in 86 that is is very memorable. But this was a good year. So good, good year to dive I, into. And these, these episodes are always fun. I agree with that. All right. Well, uh, happy 40th birthday to me uh, coming up in a few weeks here. And uh, we enjoyed this travel back. And I think. Uh, We'll do more of these in, in 2023. I definitely want to do 1998, which was 25 years ago. And I think that'll be a really cool one to get into. And maybe some maybe some other ones along the way, too. But uh, did you have anything else to add before we signed off? No, I think we're about good. I think we've uh, we've covered everything in this brief two and a half hours. <laughs> yep. Yep. Now it's time to start editing. So. All right. Well, until next time, I am Dan Newman. And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.